six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Good morning, everybody. Conley here with the Science Nights in the Morning. All three nights are assembled today. We have Dr. Anurban Bhattacharjee. We have Dr. Thomas Schiller. And all the way from Australia, we have Dr. Sean Dram. What's going on, Sean? Hey, guys. What's going on? Oh, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. Beautiful day. Good. Uh, And uh, we are going to be taking a real walk down memory lane uh, all the way through our DNA. (laughs) And we're talking about the ancient origins of DNA. And uh, what is DNA? How does it work? And how does it kind of evolve over... How many, how many, uh, what, what is the time scale that we're at right now? Well, I think well, we're going to so, try and, and talk about a sort of shorter time scale yeah. with, with yeah. human DNA. Human, right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So ancient, ancient human DNA. Yeah. Ancient DNA. DNA. Yeah. So there's, I guess, two ways of looking at this. Like if you look at the history of DNA itself, it goes back to the beginning of life and we're not going to, we're not going to start there. Um, we're going to talk about really old DNA and about as old the DNA that you can recover from a sample uh, and and do anything with it, you know, right now, 50,000 years, that's it. Um, it's about as old, which is kind of convenient. It's it's about as old as, as reliable carbon dating is. Mm-hmm. And that gives you uh, a really good opportunity, um, since carbon dating is so good now, to uh, what, what people have been doing recently, which has really blown my mind and has blown the topic of world history off its axis, is the ability to kind of go back at, you're doing a time machine thing. You hmm. can go to ancient burial where you've got carbon dating that nails down within a couple of hundred years when that dead body was stuck in the ground. And you can get a sample from the, the inner ear of a, of a skull and with some good modern techniques, get a really good sample of DNA from that. And you can get the entire genome from that individual now. This is all, all happening in the last six years, all happening in the last mm-hmm. 10 years. The, all these refined techniques, the ability to get fine-scale genetic material from a skeleton and get the entire genome, not, not just the mitochondrial gene or a single gene, but all the genetic material from that individual now remember in 2000 we sequenced the first human genome right that was 22 years ago right it was a big deal then now we're getting the entire genome from individuals from like a hun burial from 200 a.d Hmm. and we're getting an entire genome from an individual from 3,000 years ago at stonehenge and we're able to finally answer some of these historical questions, right? Because world history is great. It's, it's rich. It's full of drama. But the problem is it doesn't cover all of our, you know, all the stories because there's a lot of prehistory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is the realm of archaeology. And mm-hmm. so there's all these crazy things that happen, and we've just never been able to quite tell who are these people that are doing these things in prehistory because there's no written record. Yeah, and we well, should mention too. You, you, you talked about how just how fast this has advanced. Yeah. Um, 
from my little bit of research uh, that I've done over the past couple of days, um, and just sort of keeping an eye on on advancements in paleoanthropology and all of that, like there could be a paper out tomorrow about a, a newer and older skeleton that's been right. discovered with DNA. So if yeah, for yeah. for our it's listeners, if you're fast. trying to keep up with this, it's going it's really really fast paced. So, so yeah, when, when what this had... really does what this really does is it means. If you read a history book that was published 10, 15 years ago, it's already out of date. Okay. All, you, wow. all that you know about prehistory of Europe, of North America, all those books that you grew up with, it's the same way like if you were to take a book about the solar system that was written in 1979, it would have a picture of Pluto, and it would be this fuzzy, crappy, <laughs> digitized, pixelated picture of Pluto, and we have no idea what Pluto's like. But... We've been to Pluto now with a probe. Like, you can't read a book from the 70s about solar system. It's completely out of date. Right. That's happening right now with world history so, because of ancient DNA. Okay. So when we say ancient DNA, let's put numbers on this one. So Okay. Uh, I, I, uh, I remember back when I was just a yes. little tadpole. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so because Thomas does... Uh, paleontology and he uh, tries to see if there is DNA. We are not talking about the DNAs in dinosaurs and stuff mm -hmm. for that, right? No, nope, can't do that. Uh, nope. So we can do that, can't do that. So can we do the earliest hominids that we know about, which came like a million years can't, ago? Can't do that either. Can't, can't do, that do that either. either right so. now, because those, it's it really comes down to, so when a, when a, a skeleton goes in the ground and if it becomes mineralized okay. and it becomes a, a true fossil, mm -hmm. then the DNA is going to be gone. Okay. Right? It won't survive that. But what we're talking about are remains that aren't quite really even fossils. These are actual skeletons in the ground that haven't changed or become super mineralized yet. Okay. And so they, they still contain some of the proteins in the bone because living bone is not just minerals. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got living stuff in it. Mm -hmm. And so um, and that's why these don't go much older than, say, 10,000 years. But look, a lot of cool things have happened in the last 10,000 years, a lot of which have been totally mysterious, and we're revealing incredible things mm -hmm. about just the last 10,000 years. That's since the last Ice Age. Okay. And some of, these, some of these samples go back farther than that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the oldest one is like 25, somewhere around 50,000 B.C., so during the middle of the Ice Age or during the, the end of the Ice Age and younger. We've got that. So, so there's – yeah. No, sorry, I'm interrupting you. So my question now becomes is like, so the idea if it does not mineralize. So you're saying Jurassic Park can still happen, right? Is that what we're hearing? <laughs> not, not the not the way that they show it in Jurassic Park. But so if no, we yeah. have somehow we have a fly, fly somehow preserved that is not mineralized, is there any way it can happen? Is there any no, problem? No, okay. like DNA even, will break even, down. Even a mosquito, even a mosquito in amber is not going to have. And, you know, the original idea for Jurassic Park came from an old this is this goes into the story because there is an old paper from like the 80s where somebody tried to sequence a protein from a dinosaur bone and they got a sequence and they published it. And it was a big deal. And that, that probably got Michael Crichton thinking about, oh, could we get DNA from ancient specimens? Hmm. And it got everybody thinking about that. But the problem was what they really sequenced was their own tissue. They, it was a contaminated sample <laughs> and that they published it. It's basically said, here's a fragment of DNA and it's from a Tyrannosaur, but it's actually 
actually for my own thumb. Now that still <laughs> happens. And it's been happening. Like one of the reasons why this is all kind of coming out now, because we've had the ability to sequence the genome since 2000, but only now are we getting this incredible amount of information. Part of it is because it's becoming super cheap. And so really good labs that that are well-funded can do this really easily now. The other thing is they've, they've solved a lot of those contamination problems. Mm. And so now they're pretty sure when they get a sample from a 10,000-year-old skeleton that it's the person that, you know, whose cranium that belonged to and mm -hmm. not their own or from a bacteria or from a, a piece of, you know, dandelion that flew into the, the bone, right? So the, the contamination problem is solved. The price problem is solved. And now giddy up. Giddy up. Because <laughs> oh it's, get, it's getting out of control. It's we, like will, it, we will it's have blowing <laughs> up world history and so, i i keep saying world history and i mean history in kind of a larger sense of like what happened in the past because really what we're talking about is amazing things that happened in prehistory but in pretty recent prehistory the last ten thousand mm -hmm. years since the last ice age well that's that's when things really got interesting for for humans right. I mean, as a species there's because so many cool things that happened that nobody was around to write so we got really good archaeological record of some of these things but still to like we don't know who these people were. We don't know where they came from in many cases. Maybe I should just give you guys a, a taste of the kinds of things that we're starting to figure right. out. Like a little morsel. A nice taste. little one, um, one DNA strand. It's clean clean our, yeah. our, our cranial <laughs> palates right now. Yeah. All right. So you guys have heard of the Huns. Yes. Huns. Attila the Hun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Attila right? the Hun. Yeah. And he, he rolls into Europe. In the early, uh, you know, three around the 300 mark A.D., right? Middle, middle, you know, at the time the the Western Roman Empire was a thing, and Europe, you know, Germany, France was like an outpost of the Western Roman Empire, and all of a sudden these dudes come in from the steppes on horses and just clean up Europe, right? They they fight like no one's ever seen. They came out of nowhere. They they did a lot of destroying. They weren't super nice people. Right. And people have always wondered where the hell they came from, who they, you know, what their ancestry were. Now, flash flash back about, uh, you know, a good 600 years before then, around 300 B.C. Or, or to 100 B.C. in China, steppe warriors came and were totally screwing with China, yeah. with the Han Dynasty, mm -hmm. destroying do, very similar. Right. And, uh, you know, the Han Dynasty you know, some of the first of the great walls that were built were to help, you know, with outposts against these nomads from the steppes who came and, and were ravaging China. And, you know, a, a historian posited, he had a hypothesis that the, the Xiongnu, who were attacking Han China, and the Huns, a couple hundred years later, were the same people. They just kind of disappeared from the historical record in Central Asia after the Han Dynasty were able to fight them off. And then they reappear in Europe a couple hundred years later as the Huns. The evidence for this was very flimsy. It was just like a historical kind of, uh, you know, coincidence mm -hmm. that they happened around the same time. There's very little linguistic evidence. Yeah. Just We literally have the names of like three of these dudes from Europe that anybody wrote down. One of them was Attila. And and other and then they just kind of vanish from the historical record after Attila the Hunt dies. He dies, and there's you know the typical steppe nomad grasping for uh, the the reins of power. It dissolves, and they're gone. Well, we have burials from the Xiongnu in China. 
We have burials from the Huns in Europe. And genetically, they're the same people. Boom, right there. Yep. <clears throat> the, the old hypothesis that some professor was able to kind of think up, maybe I can't remember when it was, but it's now fairly well confirmed that Zhang Nu and the Huns were the same people. That's that right there is just nuts. Like for people yeah. who love this kind of great, uh, the, the military history of Europe, and um, this is just it's a d delicious snack to eat to, to, to know finally that the Zhang Nu and the Huns were the same. Now, Sean, do you know are there are there remnants of of Hun DNA in, in people in Europe? In modern people, modern, yeah, modern a little people? bit, and they were kind of you know, they're, they're still around and, you know, modern Europeans are such a mix. It's, it's, it's hard to trace any of this stuff, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't doubt it if in the future, uh, they will have little genetic markers where you can test for specific things like that in your own DNA. Mm -hmm. So you like know, there's already, you know, when you get on ancestry.com right now, it, it's pretty coarse. Mm -hmm. You're like, well, you're 35% Iberian, 45%, Central Asian, that kind of thing. But I bet in the future, the, there'll be specific markers where you'll be able to look and see how much Hun do I have. Mm -hmm. Right now, I don't, that stuff's not there. Um, and part of the problem has been, like, we've been, it, the story is changing a lot. If you've been following this, and you might have read a lot about um, ancient humans from stuff that was published in the 90s. And what they've been trying to do so far is try to piece together these stories using only modern human DNA, mm. right? And that gives you a slightly different story because modern humans are mixed up. Yeah, super diluted. If you go back 8,000 years ago, the story is a lot different. And so that's really what's going on now because the first attempts to reconstruct the history of humans, you know, coming out of Africa, populating Europe and Australia – that was all based on modern humans only. Now we're getting kind of a step-by-step -step time machine approach using ancient DNA. Mm -hmm. And the story is becoming much more nuanced, much more interesting. I, th I think one thing I've kind of run into um, when reading about all this is this notion that we've had historically that early, I'm not, I'm not going to say early humans, but ancient human civilizations, <clears throat> Stone Age, you know, Iron Age humans, um, or provincial. We, I think we know in, in whatever written history we have that there was some, you know, exchange. But we think of sort of these tribalist societies and uh, people sort of sequestered in their own, their own groups. Yeah. Um, but yeah. even going back to the Stone Age, I discovered some papers that, that showed that there was a lot more mixing going on than a lot we, more we previously. Right? Yeah, a lot more movement yeah. and mixing going on. Yeah. That's that's kind of the one of the biggest take home messages from all these recent stories and, and um, papers is that there apparently in, in archaeology there there had been this tendency or this dichotomy where anybody who said, look, these, this new group that appears on the scene on this horizon in our soil sample, we think they migrated from 400 miles away and just appeared out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists would would have poo pooed that idea just 50 years ago, 20 years ago. even. They'd say, no, 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 there's no reason to expect why people would have migrated any long distance. No, they probably just developed into these new people, uh, you know, gradually on their own in place and mm -hmm. they didn't move much. That whole dichotomy between you know, provincialism, like you mentioned, or, you know, mass movements has been completely skewed towards mass movements, yep. mainly because of these these genetic um, samples, you know. 
uh, one of the biggest discoveries in the last five years, and it's only been five years, is that, you know, the, the in Europe, the idea was that there was a mass migration of people into Europe from the Near East um, when the first farmers moved from the Near East, where it was more, where farming was more or less first invented, and moved into Europe and took it with them. And, you know, the first genetic evidence, you know, of course, the first ideas about this were that, oh, they probably just moved the technology and the people didn't actually change much. Well, that's been shot down completely. Turns out the farmers largely displaced most of the hunter gatherers that were in Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. They did do some interbreeding because those early hunter gatherers, the genetic material for those folks is still in modern Europeans small percentages, mm. but there was a ton of population displacement. But that was that was pretty much assumed to be the only mass migration of people into Europe was this migration of farmers, which makes sense. I mean, that, that you can't really uh, think of where else would anybody have came from. But it turned out, if you look a little, so that was all done by about 6,000 uh, years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Around the time Stonehenge was built. Six, um, seven, yes. Was, was later, right? But so farmers in, 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 in Britain. But then a couple thousand years later, a, a, another group appears in Europe. And genetically, modern Europeans have this huge section of their genome that's from this other group. And they had to kind of search around and where, where the hell did these people come from? They finally nailed it down. Turns out an archaeologist had already kind of shown that this happened using just archaeology and uh, linguistics. Mm -hmm. The appearance of the Indo-European languages into Europe. Uh, and he he pretty much figured out that, you know, the first people who domesticated the horse and came up with wheeled carriages rolled into Europe, brought early Indo-European languages with them. And that happened in the Bronze Age, you know, not not very recently, mm -hmm. you know, 3000 years ago or something like that. Mm. My dates are probably all over the place because I don't deal with numbers anyway. <laughs> So they go, the they go looking. They go looking for this third population, and they find them in this archaeological uh, region that that this fella had had already uh, identified in this amazing book called "The Horse, the Wheel, and Language," and it's this Yamnaya horizon that's around the kind of uh, steps uh, between the Black Sea and the Caspian, the it's Caucasus Mountains, in, in, right in that yeah. area, and mostly in the steps, mm -hmm. and. Um, and they went two directions. They went into Western, into Europe, and they went in, uh, you know, to the east as far as like the Tarim Basin in China and to, uh, you know, the Indian subcontinent. Mm -hmm. That's why people bought that. This is something that historians have been struggling with for 200 years. Why do people in the Indian subcontinent in Europe share a language family, the Indo-European language family? Boom. Mm -hmm. The Yamnaya steppe people. First people to come up with uh, horses and, and wheeled vehicles. They were a warlike people. It was pretty much the first step invasion. Mm -hmm. And they moved both directions and changed world history. And all that has been tied up now with genetic evidence. Yeah. So, you know, a 200-year-old hypothesis from a linguist, a uh, book that came out 2008 that was just prehistoric archaeology, and, you know, what happened is the fellow who wrote that book, David Anthony, was approached by David Reich, who is a ancient DNA specialist and said, let's test your hypothesis. And they did. And it worked out. That's that's where mm -hmm. that's where that other third group of Europeans came from, from yeah. the steps. It's a really cool marriage of 
traditional archaeology and yeah. paleogenomics and I think the the coolest thing to come out of that um just looking at it in terms of the the cultural um exchange is you know when when new populations enter an area that's already populated there's really only a couple of things that can happen they either fight and you know rape and pillage or kill off the existing population or they share their technology and and you know commerce um, begins and we Trade. have examples of all of that um, in the you know just traditional archaeological record that we have um, right. and to confirm that with with genetics is really neat and, yeah or you know two things could happen or all of the above right yeah, true. So you, you always hear people in archaeology, since it's kind of it's a weird um, science that's kind of married to a humanities, you know, anthropology. Mm-hmm. They get they get a little uh, there's a little political correctness that goes on, and there has been, and the tendency is always even in the horse, the wheel, and language. It's funny because the archaeologist is like, yeah, what probably happened is that the Yamnia moved into Europe, and they were you know um, enforcing this kind of client. Uh, subject relationship with the locals and that's how it spread and flash forward just 10 years and they find out that in britain when these step people showed up there was a 90 percent population replacement wow 90 percent yeah the, that's that's not farmers, through gentle sharing of technology i don't think so no. i don't uh, you, you can try to make it you can try to put that round peg in a, in a square hole but it it's probably, you know, what happened when cavalry first showed up in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. It wasn't client. It wasn't this. It was, it was, you know, the Spanish arrived in North America with horses and the technology was there. And it was not good news for the people who were. No. And we've seen this a million times. Yeah. And weapons but, yeah, and so the, diseases. It's pretty, pretty interesting that, you know, in just 10 years, even the, even the archaeologists who had, who figured this all out based on archaeological, archaeological evidence had to kind of change his tune. There's now, there's some evidence that they might've brought the first black plague to, to Europe. And that helped with Hmm. the 90% population replacement. It wasn't just, you know, murder constantly. It could have been the the old story of new diseases, which we've heard a million times too. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue with ancient DNA. Hello, everybody. So we are back, and we are talking about ancient DNA. Now, so uh, on the last segment when we ended, before the break, we were talking about, and you said uh, that 10% of the original population survived and 90% was replaced by these new, let's say let's say what they are like nomadic invaders. tribes invaders invaders, invaders. Yeah. well nomadic and, tribes uh, i mean they're everywhere right yeah we were invading so okay. <laughs> yeah. well, that's how we got to do it yeah. baby yeah I, i'll say it i'll say it. okay we're invading yeah. invading just the, like they just like the first farmers who came to britain were invading too yeah mm-hmm. like our ancient the, ancestors yeah. in america yeah. Yeah. yeah and like and i mean this, a lot of movement. and the same steps people that you're talking about also let's say invaded uh, india too or but in india this it becomes a little bit sketchy because the problem is we didn't really have and but we will come to I was going to come to that later but you said 10% where what remained now how do you know the 10% like where does this 10% is there like a certain 
tribe of British people, the royal family, who are the 10% we are talking about? Vampires. Yes, I think, Vampires. I, I think some of the, the confusion might be coming from the idea that what you're picturing is like in modern Br British people, what percent is left? And that's we're not even looking at that because the and this is based on, you know, a, a talk I've seen and some papers I've read from Robert Reich's lab from, okay. from Harvard. And so what what he's got is he's got remember these are all really well dated skeletons, and so he's got this incredible graph where it's just like a timeline from you know about thirty five hundred BC or something like that around the wow. time just before Stonehenge right up to when Stonehenge was built and then right after and that that right after is, is supposed to be around the time when the steppe invasion happened in Britain it happened all over Europe at different times. And with such good time control because of carbon dating, you can look at this invasion at multiple places in Europe and see what happened in every in every case. And so you can compare the genetic material of the people right before and right after. And what you see is a 90 percent replacement um, oh, okay. the, mm -hmm. amount of genetic material, not necessarily modern people in Britain don't necessarily show that same percentage because, you know, 3,500 years have gone by and more mixing has occurred since then. This is just, and that's what's so beautiful about these new data is there are snapshots mm. of exactly an incredible, like who wouldn't want to know exactly what's going on and who's around when Stonehenge was mm. built. Mm. Right? Yeah, that's one, one so, of the papers I read uh, compared it to the uh, black box mm. of history, mm -hmm. a sort yeah. of secret mm. message locked yeah. away that we can, we can decode now. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. So we're, that's what we're talking about. And of course, since then, uh, more more of the people with ancestry from from the Near East kind of went back and mixed more with those steppe people in the in the in, in ensuing two thousand years. And so now Europeans are, are a real mix of basically, um, I think, four source populations that eight thousand years ago were super super different from each other. Mm -hmm. There were two hunter gatherer groups: one in Western Europe, one in Eastern. There were the Near Eastern farmers and then the steppe people. Those are the four big populations that were super genetically different from each other 8,000 years ago that have now coalesced into modern Europeans. Mm. And so you're, every, every modern European is a, is a super mix of, of all four of those populations. And you need, you need, I mean, if you had enough money, you could find out exactly how, what the breaks are for you. Mm -hmm. And of course, you could kind of guess it by looking at some of the maps that they produce. Like, you know the steppe invasion people. Um, there's no. There's basically no pure examples of any of those four populations left. The mm. closest thing we have to the Near East farmers are modern Sardinians, okay? Because they basically colonized Sardinia, an island, and they remained there, uh, you know, ever since, and were able to kind of withstand invasions from uh, from other people ever since. And so they're, they've just been chilling there, safe on the island. Um, and I think the, the highest proportion of steppe ancestry is in, like, northern Europe. So Scandinavian, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But there's, yeah. there's no pure mix. There's no pure people of those four populations. All modern Europeans are, are just a super mix of them. And and then, like, the one that you talked about, the linguistic resemblance between uh, the 
the Indian language. By Indian, we should also clarify when we say the Indo-European, we are actually talking about the entire uh, Persia, we are talking about Iran, Iraq, yeah. India, yeah. the entire branch we are talking about, and we are comparing them to the entire branch of Europe. So mm -hmm. basically we are saying that they all had a common root origin of our language. Like, right, right. And that has and it's, been, a huge, it's a huge language family yeah. that includes an incredible number of languages. Languages. You know? Yeah. Um, all the Celtic languages, the Germanic languages, uh, of which English is mm -hmm. one. Um, the Romance. Know, languages in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, in the Northern Middle East, because, um, you know, the more Southern Middle East, Arabia, places like that, have like another branch, the Semitic languages. Yeah. So uh, all kinds, I mean, it's a huge language family. And people have known for a while that they're suspiciously similar and now we have a really good uh, reason of why mm. they would be yeah linguistically it has been well studied that those branches of languages are very similar because latin and sanskrit have the very similar roots in their languages mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. very two two different places completely how can that happen mm -hmm. obviously yeah. they came together at, at one point somehow the origin was yeah. there. So yeah, the spread. Yeah, yeah, the spread. And this ancient DNA also kind of then now brings since uh, close. Uh, when you said they came out of steppes, they, there has to be a secondary migration, right? Because uh, when we're talking about, like, because one of the first uh, human civilization, if you think about, kind of happened in the Tigris. Tigris, Tigris, mm -hmm. Euphrates belt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and the Fertile Tigris. Crescent. Yeah, yeah Fertile yeah. Crescent. Uh, Mesopotamia. Yeah, yeah. That's where pretty much things got get going, right? And that's where that's where agriculture gets going. Yeah. And, and presumably um, not far behind agriculture. And that, I should say it's the, the first place where agriculture got going, right? Because agriculture got going multiple places mm -hmm. in, in different times, but the very first time anywhere, as far as we know. Yeah. Mesopotamia, yeah. yeah, and then those are the farmers you're saying who were the first wave of migration who moved into, into Europe? Europe. Okay, into Europe. yeah, so and, and that happened over a couple thousand years. Yeah, they brought they brought you know wheat agriculture, they brought cows mm. and, and other domestic animals. Now, these Yamnaya steppe people were not agriculturalists, no. So the, what, what really caused them to take off, and they may not even have been the first people to domesticate the horse, they were close. Mm. But what they did is they kind of there was some innovations going on in the steppe at the time, horse domestication, maybe at first for just meat. Mm. They were just herding horses for meat. And then somebody had the bright idea to jump on one and ride it. But horse riding, they may not have even invented that. They may not have even invented the wheel. But what they did is they took a, those kinds of innovations, put them together. The first thing they did was they were they were basically the first people to fully exploit the grasslands of Eurasia, mm -hmm. the steppes. So everybody before then had basically stuck to river valleys um, where they could have herd cows and goats and, and, and maybe do a little farming, right? Yeah. These people, when, when they got the, the horse and the wheel, they took off onto the steppe and never looked back. They could, they could herd their animals and they could go th hundreds of miles out to the steppe and nobody could find them out there. They could, and they, they could appear out of nowhere, right? And so once they had full control of the steppe, then they started moving into places that were already settled by farmers and mm. really changing up things. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, it is, it's the first step invasion, right? There, and mm. we started this talk talking about the Huns, which is like a, a, a middle step invasion, right? 
So there's just been this, this incredible, uh, you know, pattern in world history of people coming out of the steps and changing the game. And, the, and, and it turns out that the first step invasion happened in prehistory mm. when nobody wasn't even around to write it. And nobody even mm. remembered it by the time the Huns came in. Right. They, the people in Europe who were afraid of the Huns didn't even realize that they were kind of related to the Huns. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there was some some stories passed down like the boogeyman that lives out in the could in the be. Steps. Yeah. yeah, but it happened so long ago. Nobody nobody remembered. Yeah. Right? And then, you know, the Mongols were a even later example. Right? Yeah. The Mongols came out of nowhere in the 1200s and changed the game again. But they were um, so, like 100 percent diplomats. They just yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the modern anthropological uh, you know, analysis. Well, they, they, they were good they, traders, and they were <laughs> yeah. No, I mean you, they tried diplomacy, right? Come on, they, they first were, yeah, yeah, yeah they tried. It, they said should, like we, yeah, yeah. They said like if you don't surrender. We are going to kill everybody yeah, and leave the chop, wall. Chop so if you surrender, we will leave you alone. So I think yeah. that's a, that's a, that's a good diplomacy. That yeah. is a, that's a hundred percent right because you. I don't think they could have taken over such a huge empire without. There was a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they're wanting tribute more than they want corpses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They want riches. You, know, you give us all this, and you you know you you ride under our banner. And they, they gained armies that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah well, we, we have genetic amazing. evidence that they didn't just murder everyone because right. one out exactly. of ten Europeans, I think, are what? Like, a, uh, little, a little bit of Genghis Khan. In yeah. <laughs> a little bit of Khan. A little bit of Khan in there. So, yeah. uh, so coming back to this. Now, let's – so this uh, – I'm assuming as we go down the line, we are going to do more of this analysis in the places uh, because we are right now focused on what, like just the European bits. And I'm assuming yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we're also going to start, uh, people are going to start looking deep into uh, Egypt, right? And how that happened and how the migrations right. happened. I, I imagine there'll be some amazing stuff. And I should point out like Robert Reich, who's is really kind of taken this and run with it. Is, is quick to point out that the, the reason why there's a lot of stuff going on in Europe right now is not because Europe is the center of the world. It's that Europe has an incredible uh, and, and very accessible, accessible yeah. uh, m- museum set of bones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be said a lot of the a lot of these analyses, nobody's going into old tombs and grabbing bones and sampling them. Pretty much all of this stuff is happening with bones that are already in museums and mm-hmm. well cataloged and well dated so it's easy for like robert reich has probably never been to an archaeological site he's just up in harvard and people are sending him samples that are already Mm. really well described and they know who these people are and like you know they know where they found them and they know how old they are but what they don't know is who the people are genetically and so he just tells them that they put together the story Mm -hmm. and so um it's all museum-based stuff mostly but you're right. This is going to expand out. It's expanded in North America in a really interesting way. Um, and when it expands into North America, it, some interesting politics are going to be involved. Do we have time to talk about this now, Conley, or should we wait? Yeah, till, we have a we have okay. about uh, five minutes. But before we get into that, I do have a question. Yeah. You kind of triggered a question. In 1956, cool, cool. there was a film out uh, during the big John <laughs> Wayne era. It was called The Conqueror. Where John Wayne played Genghis Khan, yeah, Genghis and Khan. The, the number one logical choice to play yes. Genghis Khan. I mean, <laughs> so was that more accurate? Because I remember the woke mob came out and they were like, "Oh, yeah. this is awful. No. You can't yeah, do he, this." He would have been totally well, canceled. Yeah. He doesn't change so his I, voice I kinda, at all. I dude. tripped on myself a little bit. I tripped on myself a little bit because the the original step people that rolled into Europe, yeah, 
were probably um, they probably didn't look like Mongols or Huns. Uh. Uh, so their, 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 their genetic affiliation is from this interesting old North Eurasian population who probably looked like, you know, what we conceive of as Caucasian mm-hmm. or white people. Right. So mm. at least the Yamnaya people who moved west and east were probably um, people who looked fairly Caucasian. And and the Mongols and Huns were definitely kind of more of like the East East Asian. Now, that, a lot of that East Asian um, looking you know, genetic material moved into the steppe, you know, later than the Yamnaya population. Now, so when you say East Asian, I'm thinking like Chinese. across between Russian no. and and Chinese like just, folks. I mean, I mean like Chinese, Chinese Korean, Japanese, Chinese, yeah. Japanese. So yeah. like it yeah. looks like like about you know ten thousand, eight thousand, up to like five thousand years ago in the in the northern steppe, Siberia, people probably looked a lot like Eurasians, or I'm sorry, like Europeans looked. Yeah, like. and and then uh, and there were like there was a later kind of movement of more of the East Asian genetic material after that. Which is why modern Siberians, right, look like, you know, Native Americans. Yeah, and right? I, and so they they all kind of they that all kind of happened pretty recently. And so, I you know I I mentioned that the Yamnaya and the Europeans when the Huns showed up, they would say, oh wow, they they wouldn't even know that they they were kind of related. We're all pretty related, but. You know, in terms of looks and things, it wasn't quite like that. And also, like it is, it has been fairly with the well, last. John Wayne was a bad choice for the yeah. role. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right. Okay, well, yeah, you've answered you answered my you, question. Hey, watch, watch a clip of that. It's really pretty funny because yeah, he doesn't change his voice. He, he doesn't. He still he does the same. I'm Genghis Khan, and I'm here to conquer your lands, partner. Y'all exactly conquer y'all lands, conquer y'all's lands, them their lands out there. Yeah. I was going to say, like, one of the things is very obvious within the last 10, 15 years, like, there's also the genetic studies which prove, uh, like, Indian subcontinent is very much related to the uh, Eurasians rather than having their own kind of, you know, like, yeah, the same yeah. story of what has happened. Like, and we do have certain tribal areas where we have a very distinct kind of, uh, you know, own DNA, which is very l- different from what mm-hmm. the DNA mm-hmm. of uh, uh, the people, uh, the usual crowd of Indians would be. But again, it's also very interesting to see because India has been invaded multiple times over years. Right, right. And there has yeah, been... That's, he- something, that's something that is um, coming out from this. That there's been, there've been people have noticed that there seem to be little enclaves of people yeah. scattered around the world that represent kind of older older um, populations of humans that mm-hmm. didn't get mixed as much. Yeah. And so you think about like Aboriginal Australians, New mm-hmm. Guinea, there are these Melanesians and other, like some of those island populations in the Philippines where people look like Aboriginal Australians instead of Filipinos yeah. mm-hmm. and, um, and that kind of thing. And, and genetically we're kind of, and this happened in, in Africa too. Yeah. Um, Africans, you know, the San people in South Africa look very different from, folks in West and East Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's all, all this great genetic evidence of, of these migrations of people that get agriculture yeah. that swamp the existing hunter-gatherers. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> that happened in Africa with the Bantu expansion. Bantu expansion, that's what it I was happened, It happened in uh, Central America when the Utu, Uto Aztecans, uh, you know, carried that language family into North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happened in East Asia when um, Asian agriculture mm-hmm. spread from there across, you know, South Asia, 
even out into the Polynesian islands. Yeah. So this has happened multiple times. And now we have really good genetic evidence uh, to couple with the limited archaeological evidence mm-hmm. and kind of um, linguistic evidence that was available. Yeah, one, one thing that just came to mind talking about um, these genetic studies is looking at it from sort of a paleontological standpoint. There's this concept of preservation bias. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if another reason we have such a good record in in Europe and this 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 whole region that we've been talking about is because um, people were burying their mm-hmm. their dead. Because I know a lot well, of these certainly. a lot of these yeah. these uh, skeletons were collected from essentially burial grounds <clears throat> or cemeteries. And yeah. there are a lot of civilizations that have existed that you know burned their their dead or did something else with the with the mm-hmm. bodies. So I'm wondering if there's going to be some sort of preservation bias issue when this really, really continues to explode um, and we start looking yeah, that, in other that, places. That's something they're going to have to keep in mind for sure. Yeah. And, of course, mm-hmm. it's going to be all – you won't be able to do it if you can't find the samples. So we, we'll need archaeologists. We'll need those museum collections mm-hmm. to tell these stories. Yeah. Well, I think we got another break coming up Yep. in our last segment after this. So we'll see you all back in a couple of minutes. All right. All right, we're back. We're the Science Knights. We're talking about ancient DNA. Now, um, Sean, something that, that um, I guess historically has been a, a controversial issue, I guess, is maybe associating phenotypes, the, the physical characteristics of different populations, to their, their origins and, and maybe delving into um, how different populations mixed historically um and humans yeah yeah, humans human populations and this this is the way we we go about looking at other animals and even extinct animals things that are fossilized we look at their physical characteristics and we try and surmise what their their um evolutionary history is like and also their provinciality and how they've migrated and, and all that so why not do it with humans um, yeah, but for for obvious reasons, it's been sort of a a, a controversial topic. But um, has this this sort of revolution in paleogenomics helped to bring this more onto the scientific end of the spectrum? Yeah, yeah, that's a really that's exactly what's going on. People are talking about those kinds of features again, and you know, if you look at a textbook in anthropology a hundred years ago. It's full of descriptions of, you know, uh, facial patterns from skeletons where they're, you know, they're able to figure out using just like facial bones and things like that, basic similarities and differences among humans. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a period of time through the 40s, 50s, 60s, that became very kind of taboo to talk about because, you know, Nazis used those same kinds of terms for their ends and it got really ugly and, you know, people just kind of ignored it for a while and and it kind of, it was like a skeleton in the closet. But now it's kind of coming out again because we can marry it to genetic material and as long as you use very precise words, we've totally thrown away the word race. We don't even use it anymore. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, and you just use the word population for different groups of people. Yeah. And you can, and, and if you're more careful about it than they were in the thirties, right. It, you can get an amazing story and, and that stuff is coming back. And one, one, a good example of this, and we'll bring it to North America, you know, some of the earliest uh, fossil or skeletons of humans in North America, 
had, you know, this is known for a long time and, and it became quiet for a long time that, that a lot of those early skulls looked fairly Caucasian to the anthropologists. Mm-hmm. And they've always kind of racked their head and wonder what the hell that's all about. And now that we know that, you know, we have this genetic information that shows that modern Europeans and Native Americans actually share uh, genetic material from a source population that was in North Eurasia, in Siberia, mm-hmm. about 15,000 years ago. And wow. so if 15,000 years ago there was this population of people in Siberia that, you know, some of them moved west and eventually became the Yamnia and then took over Europe. Some of them, about 10,000 years ago, moved into North America and were one of the populations that populated North America and South America. Mm -hmm. So there's this amazing genetic uh, link between Europeans and Native Americans that the the, the skulls actually told us a long time ago that we kind of forgot and ignored for a while. Now that idea is coming back, and it's very interesting. Um, North America is going to be a very interesting place to use this new technology yeah because we, we do have we do have burials and we do have older yes older yes. material that's sitting in museums that we could yeah. be aged in and what i what i hinted at uh, in the last segment is it's going to become very it's going to be interesting and, and difficult to work in north america probably more than any other place in the world and it's not because of a lack of an archaeological record not because of a lack of technology or scientific curiosity it's going to be because um, it's difficult to get permission right. to ethically work with Native American skeletons. Mm-hmm. If, and you can probably imagine why. Yeah, There's actually right. a federal law uh, uh, where you, you know, the, 1990, the movement of trying to kind of uh, treat Native American skeletons with more respect and maybe even repatriate them, get them out of museums and get them buried the proper way that Native Americans want those bones, their ancestors to be handled. So this is already blown up. Robert Reich stepped on his own shoes. Um, he got approached by a group that had great skeletons from Chaco Canyon, right up the road mm-hmm. north in New Mexico. And they wrote a paper that is totally mind-blowing and it's rewriting the history of the ancient Southwest. And it's unbelievable. And instead of being celebrated for the incredible find that it was, it was attacked for being unethical hmm. so well, what i found think... is un- un- unbelievable oh, so Nick, ho- ho- Chaco... yeah sorry sorry no no no, sorry. I, I no, might uh, be no, no, no. no uh, uh this Chaco canyon this but you are saying that tribes who live there are like the, they are the ones who approach robert reich right no 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 so the the archaeologists that's great that i'm glad you're making me hammer this out so okay. archaeologists who are familiar with chaco canyon are okay. white people right okay um, and so they they and it's a national historic site so it's okay. federal land okay the skeletons are in the american museum of natural history and were dug up by dudes a hundred years ago who didn't care so people, at all yeah yeah and the people so the the damage the crime was done right they, yes. they grabbed the skeletons they're put yeah, in boxes yeah. shipped, shipped to new york so the chaco canyon is an amazing site it's these huge stone palaces and one of the questions has always been, and anthropologists have been fighting over this for decades, are, are these just simple pueblos where farmers built pueblos like modern pueblos, or are these like palaces where elites lived and they were like mm. kings? Mm. And, the, and there's really good archaeological evidence that that's the case because there's these palaces and then it looks like commoners lived in, near the fields, 
right? Well, and they they brought in wooden beams from 50 miles away, and those were probably not carried by the people who lived in those palaces, yeah. right? Mm. But our anthropologists, their tendency is to think about egalitarianism, and they're like, oh, no, probably. Well, they sequenced people who lived in the richest burials in Chaco Canyon and found that those people were part of a ruling dynasty that lived at Chaco Canyon for 330 years. Wow. They were genetically identical on their mitochondrial genome, which is passed by mom. So it's a, it was a matrilineal descent of Chacoan kings. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. It probably sounds counterintuitive because you're thinking yeah. a matrilineal descent means matriarchal. No, you can have a patch, patriarchal matriline. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Where you're, yeah, okay. I don't know exactly how that works, but the, the descent system in many of the uh, you know, Native American cultures was matrilineal descent, but they still had kings, right? So it, that's like the Jewish the people, right? Like if you have the Jewish, Jewish people also, the religion comes from the mother, right? It doesn't come from the father. The no, mom. Well, this I is a genetic talk, yeah, material. No, I'm yeah. talking about like I'm talking about like kind of like that. Like mm-hmm. as Sean's talking yeah. about, like the king is the, a man, but right. to be a part of the tribe, you have to come from the mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah, if you yeah. think about it in terms of Jewish religion, the religion comes from the mother, but the ruler is a man. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like I'm talking yeah. about that one. There you go. Yeah. And so they. This is all. This is all from the analysis of a bunch of skeletons in Chaco Canyon, and. Like I said, um, instead of everybody's mind being blown, holy cow, this is you know solving an ancient southwestern mystery. Instead, the the group was attacked um, for unethical use of the skeletons mm-hmm. because supposedly um, the, it's 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 iffy, right? Because their their foundation for using the skeletons was that those skeletons were unassigned and it was impossible to know which modern Native American group they belonged to. And um, that that was true. And so they went ahead and did it anyway. Um, And now that they know, they probably this is actually supporting the case that the Chacoans were probably the ancestors of modern Hopis because Mm -hmm. they show a matrilineal descent system. Yeah. And And there's there's so many mysteries in North American uh, native. And this could this could have been like, a oh, wow, they helped to show a link between Chaco and modern Hopis. But instead, it became a total political mm-hmm. hot potato. So this is what, unfortunately, for for a North American and people who are interested in Native American archaeology, I I think the story is going to come slow for for fans of Southwestern archaeology, fans of American archaeology. Mm-hmm. Everywhere else in the world, it's going to go really fast, and it's going to be mind blowing. So you might want to become a fan of your your Asian prehistory yeah. um, right now. Because you'll have to wait a little bit longer because it's going to it's going to what really it's going to have to take and which will be a good thing is going to be really good collaboration between Native Americans, modern Native Americans and archaeologists. Mm. Well, that that has been a long time coming and it is coming, but it's coming slow. Yeah, well, it's it's going to be a hard pill to swallow for for both those indigenous people and and the archaeologists who who are helping to do the work, because. Um, if it's true that there was a lot more sort of European influence, then mm, they, that's, that the, brings in an interesting question, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah they, they, mm-hmm. the, the, that, this, that came up. That came up with the discovery of a really old skull in Washington State. Oh yeah, what they called Kennewick Man. I've, I've heard of that. Because yeah. the skull looked Caucasian, 
the archaeologist uh, used that as he said, look, this thing isn't even Native American, so we're going to sample it. Mm-hmm. And it, it became an absolute poop storm. Oh, boy. That's, that became a huge political plot. So even when, it, yeah, the, the other thing, you know, it's, so think about this. The Navajo, who, who live in northern Arizona currently, also claim a, a Chaco Canyon as very significant to them. And they weren't, all the archaeological evidence suggests that they weren't even there when Chaco Canyon was built. Mm. It's not theirs. And only archaeological evidence can show that, right? Yeah. So if Navajo said, We're, we want Chaco Canyon because it's ours, and the archaeological evidence says, hell no. Um, you know, you guys arrived in a huge mass migration from Alaska, you know, in the last four or five hundred years. What do you do then? Yeah. Well, the, the, the Navajo are very, a very big, very uh, politically active tribe. Well, uh, you know, another the other side of that coin is like what we talked about with the, the steppe invasions is we're talking about a scale of hundreds and hundreds of years. They could have controlled the that right. region at some point they, in time yeah, that's not that's preserved in the archaeological record certainly the navajo even though they're recent arrivals have been around for longer than we have mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean yeah i mean uh, even let's forget I and mean, it's going to also rile a lot of pe- people uh in mainland europe who are believers of our fatherland of their oh, yeah, yeah well, that, th- that's their yeah. problem because they don't want to be associated that's why, with yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's totally hand, been dispelled already yeah i mean they still yeah, think yeah. that there is something going on but yeah. it's becoming yeah. very clear that no you are still a mixture of bunch of people there is nothing yeah. pure mm-hmm. it's just an, old, yeah. an older mixture yeah this, just this is a great this is a great uh maybe this would be a good thing to end on because that's that's 100% right. Like, on one hand, you can, it, this stuff seems a little, uh, it makes you wince a little bit when you talk about ancient populations. You're like, oh my God, are we gonna, are we gonna get the skinheads to latch yeah. on to this stuff in weird ways that were unexpected? And people have already written about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of these, some of these weird, uh, you know, fringe dark web groups are taking these papers and going, oh, see? We're the original cordware people who stepped in. It's like, man, it takes some serious mental gymnastics to come to that yeah. conclusion. Yeah. I, I guess I'll end on this is great. The Some of the well, that Western hunter gatherer group that was in Europe that the farmers came in on, um, some of the first examples of modern humans in, in modern Britain or in Britain, uh, like 8,000 BC, black with blue eyes. Hmm. That's cool. And that, their their ancestry is in uh, everybody but Honorbot. <laughs> well, that, that's the I, thing. If you, I, 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 I as I mean, I feel left out. I feel <laughs> left out. I'm like, how did we not get that yeah. one? Well, Since you, we got everybody yeah, in. You guys, you guys had war elephants. I'm pretty oh, sure, unless well, unless there's some like uh, British in you from from the colonial period. I don't think you would have any of that because any, uh, Conley, me, and Thomas are, are European as hell. And so we probably have some of that hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. in us. Yeah, I think the where um, we come down is basically the steps invasion. Like that's where the common unifying Yeah, that's factor. where we, yeah. We, yeah. we are all pretty similar because of that. Yeah. And yeah. that's that maybe should be the take-home message for everybody is this all happened in the last 10,000 years. There used to be very distinctive groups of humans genetically. And over the last thousand years, most of those genetic differences have gone away. Yeah. We're all yeah. 
we're all one big happy human family. Yeah. And then yeah. what we can look for forward to the future, and I want to end this one, that, Sean, I want to know, can we bring back mammoths and saber-tailed tigers <laughs> back? Because we have their yes. flesh and everything, right? Yes. So we yeah, can yeah. bring I them think, back. So in ter- if we want to bring it back to cloning, like we, yes. could, we, we have the technology right now. If we didn't have any ethical scruples, we could, we could clone one of these Yamnia people to find out what they look like. Wow. And, and so if you can get the whole genome and you have a surrogate mother... And we, you know, I don't you think can, we want to talk about clone. that. It just <laughs> so with, feels, yeah. With, with, the, with the mammoth, what you'd need is a surrogate mother. That's tough, but that, you could use an African elephant. Uh, uh, so yeah. that's probably possible. Yeah. Siberian tiger or uh, the saber tooth, if we could find the DNA, could probably use a modern lion to be a surrogate mother. Probably work. Mm. But those are the two things you need. Um, and otherwise, it becomes really, really difficult. Okay. And so you need the whole genome and a surrogate mother. And no ethics. Yeah, zero and ethics. No ethics, no zero ethics, ethics at all. Yeah. You need zero ethics at all. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know what's going to happen yeah. in the future. We're going to eliminate all of our ethics. Yes. And we're just going to put our nose to the grindstone. Yep. And maybe one day we will all kind of look like... Uh, the same, the same little little people. Who knows? Mm. You think will that ever happen, Sean? We're all going to look like Honor Bun. We're all going to little... look like I. I we... Fast forward two hundred years, we're all going to look like Brazilians. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Brazilians or Indians? I mean, all that's right. Can we invent sure. a time machine already? Brazilians. Yeah, exactly. I want to get there as fast. Not. As possible. <laughs> I, I have been to Brazil. Yes, the beach is extremely filled with good-looking people, <laughs> but not on the streets. There is a misconception there. <laughs> Sorry, any Brazilian people who are listening. Right hey, now. I give the compliment. It's filled with beautiful people on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there's some for me to write my diary before yes. I go to sleep tonight. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. This has been another great episode of Science Nights in the Morning. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.